On today's episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. James Anderson about David Hume. So we cover all sorts of topics related to Hume. Who is he? What is his social context? What is his religious context? What did he believe? What was his religious skepticism, his philosophical project, and how has he really impacted theology for good or for ill, and how ought Christians receive and think and read non-Christians like David Hume. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, what we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church, but we don't want to just think in the abstract, we want to think well. And so we've endeavored to create an intellectual culture that is full of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And we hope that in our podcast, in our online presence, all of those things that we promote those virtues, that we nurture those virtues, and hopefully we exemplify those virtues too. Now, on this particular episode, I'm really looking forward to introducing you all to our guest, Dr. James Anderson, and we're going to be chatting about David Hume. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. He's got a great short introductory book on David Hume, to his thought, to his life, to his relevance, and I commend it to you. It's in the Great Thinker series, so it's just 100 pages or so. It's a really nice introduction. Now, Dr. Anderson has a ton of other work, too, that's really interesting. He actually has several papers that interact with uh, previous guest we have, Dale Tuggy, uh, talking about Trinity, mystery, those sort of things. But what makes me really excited to have guys like Dr. Anderson on the show is his posture and thinking. I think he really exemplifies all that we want to promote on the show, charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and especially cheerful confessionalism. I mean, he's a professor at RTS Charlotte uh, in the confessionally reformed tradition. So he's really melding two things that I just love and dearly cherish, analytic theology and uh, reformed theology. So both together, all in one. So, Dr. Anderson, before we get started, maybe give us a little bit of background introduction on who you are, where you came from, and what got you interested in thinking about David Hume and writing a book on him. Okay, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your show. Really excited to be here and very honored. So, um, I am the Carl W. McMurray Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. So, many of you your listeners, I guess, will know about RTS, multi-campus uh, seminary. So I'm, I'm based in Charlotte. Been here for uh, nearly nearly 13 years. Uh, but as you can tell from my accent, I'm not from North Carolina or South Carolina or any Carolina. Um, I'm from uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, moved here from Edinburgh, where I lived for some uh, 17 years. Um, started off in uh, engineering or did a, a bachelor's degree in engineering and worked in that field for about 13 years, but also got very interested, well, initially in Christian apologetics, um, but getting into the world of Christian apologetics got me interested in theology because I wanted to know more about what is this faith? What are these doctrines that I'm defending? Uh, and also philosophy, because I realized that, uh, you know, in order to do apologetics effectively, you have to be conversant with philosophical thought, critical thinking, uh, philosophical movements. And, uh, you know, I really got sucked into the world of, well, the sort of the intersection of uh, theology and philosophy, um, which we would call philosophical theology. And so I, I did a PhD in that area um, on uh, 
paradox, the phenomenon of paradox in Christian theology, and uh, yeah, and, and and the Lord led me in uh, through a series of steps to pursue a teaching position, and uh, landed here by God's providence at at RTS. Um, so I assume that's enough in the way of a bio. Uh, theologically, I'm, I'm a Reformed Presbyterian, ordained in a Presbyterian denomination, and that's that's basically my, my theological orientation. I think you asked, uh, how did I get interested in David Hume? Well, uh, anyone who gets into Christian apologetics comes face-to-face with Hume sooner or later. I mean, he's one of the classic, influential critics, not just of uh, supernaturalism or religion in general, but specifically of the Christian faith with his critique of natural theology, his uh, argument against miracle claims. And so, you know, any any self-respecting Christian apologist or philosopher sooner or later has to, has to try to understand Hume, uh, grapple with his thought, um, come up with some kind of a response. So that was my initial interest in, in, in Hume. And uh, I would say I was generally conversant uh, with with Hume's writings. But I had the opportunity to write a book in uh, PNR's Great Thinkers series on David Hume. Uh, I won't go into the background how I ended up writing on Hume. Uh, it was originally pitched to me as another philosopher whom I won't name, and I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to write on that guy. Uh, that would be crazy. Um, but I, they, they asked me who would I be willing to, to write on, and I said, well, you know, Hume would be interesting. Uh, it seems like you haven't already got someone to write on Hume in that series, and it, it intersects with my interests in Christian apologetics and some work I'm doing on epistemology, and uh, so I, I agreed to do that, and the book came out in, oh, I can't even remember whether it was 2019 or 2020, but uh, not, not too long ago. Well, Dr. Anderson, I think our listeners are probably going to be all across the spectrum when it comes to exposure to Hume and who he is and his thought and all that stuff. So maybe the best place to start is just with, um, I don't want to spend too much time here, but it would be helpful, I think, to give some biographical information about Hume, um, especially uh, his relationship to the Christian faith. Was he raised around Christianity um, and then, you know, maybe into his early life? And then we'll get into more details about specific areas of his thought. Sure, yeah. So I imagine most of your listeners are already familiar with the name David Hume, will have heard uh, of him, but may not know much about his background. Um, He he, uh, was voted the uh, greatest Scot of the millennium in a Sunday Times poll, Sunday Times is a British newspaper, in in 1999, so at the end of the second millennium, they had a vote on who would be the greatest Scot of that millennium, and and, uh, David Hume came out top. I don't know that I would have put him at the top. I maybe would have favoured the guy who discovered penicillin or the guy who invented the telephone. But anyway, uh, it shows something about how Hume is regarded in his home country. And he was an 18th century figure, uh, born in uh, Edinburgh in 1711, died in Edinburgh in 1776, spent most of his life there. And uh, he was he's best described as, I think, the 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 best known and most influential of the Scottish Enlightenment philosophers. So if the Enlightenment we think of as a sort of 17th, 18th century philosophical movement that placed great emphasis on the autonomy of human reason and the emerging scientific method 
um, then there are a number of philosophers that would be regarded as enlightenment philosophers. But there was a there was a group of emerging thinkers in uh, Scotland in the 18th century, and uh, Hume was one of them. And it's really his thought, while maybe not the most profound of all of them, it's the one that's that's had, I think, the the greatest impact in the long run. So uh, he was uh, you know, raised in, in Scotland uh, where the uh, Church of Scotland was still the, you know, the mainstream church, the state church. And um, I understand he, he would have been uh, probably catechized in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. He would have uh, been asked to, to learn that. And if I recall, his, his uncle was a Church of Scotland minister. So, you know, he would have been raised with a generally Christian um, uh, religious education, but it appears that very early on he became skeptical, and uh, even in his teenage years, he'd pretty much abandoned not just a commitment to Christianity, to but to to any kind of theistic religion. Um, he uh, he 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 read what he regarded as the best works of natural theology, the best arguments for God's existence, and came away unimpressed, and came to the conclusion that there was no good rational basis for belief in God let alone the specific historical claims of the Christian religion. So so that really characterized his entire life. He, he became a skeptic early on and continued on that trajectory uh, right up until his death. So I think that's a nice segue to my next question. I really do want to give a lot of attention to the sections in your book, and one of those is his philosophical project. So what is Hume's philosophical project? Is it more expansive uh, that you've been talking about him reading natural theology, not finding it impressive? So is it greater than that? Or does that really encapsulate the, the primary mode, I guess, in essence of his project? Yeah, so he's obviously a, a critic. He's a, he's a, he's skeptical about many things, but that's not his primary interest. There's a sense in which his skepticism is just the product of a, a prior um, project that he wants to to engage in and and complete um, he described his own plot project as trying to develop a quote a complete science of human nature a complete science of human nature which really is as ambitious as it as it sounds um, Hume like many in his day was very uh, int- uh, impressed by recent scientific developments. So Isaac Newton would have been a sort of hero figure, the guy who figures out the basic laws of nature and is able to compute where the planetary bodies are going to move. So Hume is is part of a, a culture where uh, the new emerging empirical natural sciences are considered to be almost paradigmatic for human, uh, knowledge, uh, human knowledge. And uh, what Hume wants to do is turn that same sort of scrutiny and uh, scientific methodology to human nature itself. So if you can think of uh, Isaac Newton and other scientists as developing a science of non-human nature, that is the world outside of us, Hume thinks, well, we need to do the same for human nature itself. And that would be um, the human intellect, uh, for uh, our moral judgments, our aesthetic judgments, really everything that encompasses human thought and action. He thinks we can develop a sort of scientific account of that as well that 
will be uh, based on purely on empirical observations. So this is this is one of uh, Hume's axioms that his ho whole project has to be empirical in nature, it has to be based strictly on what he calls the experimental method. So making observations and then trying to derive general principles, law-like principles from them. So he thinks that just like there's a law of nature, there must be a law that determines how we how we think, how we form ideas, how we make decisions, how we make moral judgments. So it's that vision that he has for developing a, a scientific and naturalistic account of human nature. That's what he wants to do. And uh, as I say in the book, there's really three distinctives that, of this project. First, uh, it's empiricist. He, he wants to take a, a strictly empiricist approach, relying only on experience and observation. So no appeal to supposed divine revelation. Of course, that would be off the table for Hume. But also um, sort of rational speculations or appeals to first principles of reason, as many of the rationalist philosophers uh, did, um, Hume thinks, no, uh, we've got to be strictly empiricist based on, on our own experiences and the experiences of others. So that would be the first distinctive, his empiricism. Secondly, his naturalism, at least a, a methodological naturalism. He doesn't assume a kind of metaphysical naturalism at the outset, although that's pretty much where, where um, in effect, what he's assuming. But it's more of a methodological naturalism that his account of human nature isn't going to appeal to any supernatural things, any, any transcendent things, anything that's beyond the realm of ordinary human experience. So very naturalistic approach. And then the third distinctive of his um, project is that it's, it's characterized by a, a skepticism, not a skepticism that he necessarily embraces. And he's not a, a global skeptic who, who ends up doubting everything like some of these, you know, radical skeptics. But um, generally speaking, he, he takes the view that if something cannot be grounded in empirical observations, then we've no right making knowledge claims about it, and that we need to be honest uh, and self-critical about the limits of what reason and experience can actually show. And he thinks that if you cleave closely to that principle, that only what you can prove on the basis of experience, then uh, you may be able to know some things, but it means that we're going to end up rather skeptical uh, about uh, a lot of other things. And, and that's actually, indeed where he ends up on a number of topics. So before we move further on into into your book and you talk about um you know his ethics and his skepticism and i, I want to spend quite a bit of time if we can on on his views on natural theology and miracles so i, I do i want to save time for that but i did have a question about how he was received during his day so we think of him today as you know a, a, a great thinker obviously he's in this great thinker series that you've written the book for um and we know him I guess from a Christian perspective, primarily because of his art, philosophical arguments against natural theology and miracles. But my understanding is, in his day, he was kind of a jack of all trades. He wrote a history of, of England. Like, was that what was he primarily known for his philosophical contributions, or was that more, um, you know, after his death that he became known for the things that we know him for now? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I don't think he was recognized as a great philosopher in his day. Clearly, he was recognized as a sort of leading public intellectual. But he fancied himself really 
very early on in his life as leading a life of a man of letters. That is, he was going to be an intellectual who wrote on a range of topics, history, politics, economics, uh, moral theory, um, science to a degree and so forth. So, so he, he, in a sense, was a jack of all trades and, and wrote on a wide range of topics. Now, he wrote his first major work, The Treatise on Human Nature, as a very young man. I mean, he was just in his, if I recall, in his uh, early 20s or mid-20s when, when that was published. And he considered this to be his magnum opus. It was in three volumes. And uh, he thought that this would basically be sort of uh, the, the almost the last word in philosophy that he was going to answer. This is going to be a, a decisive treatment of epistemology, the theory of knowledge and of ethics as well. And um, he had uh, great hopes for the impact that it would have. And it didn't have that impact at all. In fact, he himself said that it, it fell dead born from the presses like a, like a, a stillborn child. Um, that in itself was a bit of an exaggeration because people did pay notice to it. There were, there were critical reviews written of it and he had to respond to those reviews. But he wasn't making great waves, but he was becoming recognized um, and, and, and gaining respect as, as a public intellectual engaging with these big ideas. And his, uh, he, he basically went back and, and sort of reworked his ideas in, in two later works, one on epistemology and one on, one on ethics. And those are probably the ones that have had the lasting impact. Uh, he did gain some notoriety even early on as appearing to be um, at least uh, less than fully enthusiastic about the Christian religion. Uh, early on in his career, he, he kept his cards close to his chest regarding his religious skepticism, partly because um, it just, you know, to, to have been labeled early on as an as an atheist which already he was beginning to be called um you know would have would not have helped his public reputation and so he often approached these uh, topics rather tangentially or, or wrote in the third person or raised ideas in a kind of hypothetical way without committing himself to them uh, but arguably later as, as his career progressed he became bolder in articulating his skeptical views about miracles um, about uh, natural theology and um, you know I think I think uh, by the time he died, there was considerable interest in his work, both enthusiasm but arguably more more criticism. Um, and even in his day, his his uh, career ambitions were cut off um, by those who were concerned about his ideas. Um, there was a position, if I recall, either at the University of Edinburgh or the University of Glasgow, that he a uh, professorial position that he was being considered for that was basically vetoed um, because because of his apparently sceptical views. But it's really only um, after his death that uh, his uh, ideas were really latched onto and uh, developed and given the kind of weight that they are uh, accorded today. So along with that, on his religious skepticism, what exactly is his religious skepticism? I mean, I think most of us in seminary probably required to read sections of Hume, particularly on his skepticism about miracles. I mean, is it his skepticism far, more far-reaching that, than that, more expansive than that, or is it primarily limited to questioning the validity of miracles? Yeah, that's right. Certainly those of us who are 
you know, have religious convictions. Uh, that's, in a sense, the most interesting part of Hume for us, because it's, a, it's in a sense, it's a direct attack on the things that we hold most dear. Um, now, Hume himself, as I mentioned, uh, became personally uh, skeptical about the Christian faith quite early on in his life. He studied natural theology, the leading natural theology of his day. So the works of Samuel Clark and Samuel Clark's had this um, uh, widely um, endorsed version of the cosmological argument, the first cause argument. And uh, John Locke, uh, a prior uh, empiricist philosopher, had written a sort of a defense of the reasonableness of Christianity. And Hume Hume had read these and... um, uh, came away unimpressed, un- unconvinced, and then really, I think, made it part of his agenda to press, to really to publicize his skepticism, to press, to press uh, his own skepticism and, and, and make it more widely appreciated. Um, now, he doesn't, he doesn't really write one particular work that's a critique of Christianity, and actually, in a sense, he doesn't write anything that, that, uh, presents itself as a critique of Christianity, that would have been quite um, unstrategic on his his part to, to so directly um, attack the, the Christian faith. But uh, there are a number of uh, planks of his work that together um, represent his general critique of religion. So the first plank would be that his his work on epistemology, that is his his empiricist uh, theory of knowledge, he reaches the conclusion that we cannot know any theological or metaphysical truths. There's, there are some things that we can know, but on a strictly empiricist basis, we can't know anything about uh, matters that go beyond our immediate experience. So any kind of metaphysical dogmas or theological dogmas are simply unknowable in principle. So right there in his epistemology, that's that's kind of an attack on the claims that Christians would want to make about God, the existence of God, the knowledge of God's attributes, and so forth. The second plank is he writes a, a naturalistic history of religion. So he's giving a sort of an explanation of where religious belief comes from without appealing to the supernatural. So when we you know, ask the question, why, why do people believe in God? Well, our answer is because God's made us that way, because there is a God, and God's designed us to think his thoughts after him and to see his handiwork in creation and so forth. Well, what Hume offers is a, is a competing account of where religious beliefs come from that is entirely naturalistic and basically argues that religious beliefs don't come from reason, they don't come from an, any sort of scientific argumentation, they come from um, crude human instincts, um, uh, an attempt to overcome the challenges of nature. Um, they're really a projection in many ways. But but th- that's another way of sort of subtly undermining Christianity by suggesting there's a way of explaining why Christians believe what they believe that doesn't depend on Christianity being true. But actually there's a naturalistic uh, almost an evolutionary account. I mean, Hume comes before Darwin, of course, but in a sense, Hume is a precursor of Darwin in offering naturalistic, progressive, evolutionary accounts of of many things, including religious beliefs. That's the second plank. The third plank this is his critique of natural theology, his very influential critique of, of the theistic arguments in his dialogues concerning natural religion, where he critiques... Um, the cosmological argument and the design argument in particular, um, 
mainly what's called the analogical argument from design that says, well, um, there are aspects of the natural world that uh, look ordered and um, arranged for a purpose in the way that human artifacts do. Uh, therefore, by an analogical inference, there must be a designer of the natural world, just as there are designers of human artifacts. And he goes on the attack, a very, very forceful attack against the analogical argument from design. And then the fourth plank of his religious skepticism is his influential critique of miracle claims that comes in his work and inquiry uh, concerning human understanding, where uh, he doesn't argue against miracles directly. He doesn't make the claim that miracles can't happen. In fact, that would be quite contrary to his other claims because he says that's the sort of claim, that's a, that's a metaphysical claim. You, you can establish that on an empirical or an empiricist basis. So he's, he's not going to go make the strong claim that miracles can't happen. But what he is going to argue is that uh, you should never believe a miracle claim. So if someone claims that a miracle has occurred, whether they claim that they themselves observed a miracle or that they heard from someone else. But if someone makes the claim that a miracle has occurred, then Hume argues that it could never be rational to believe that claim from your standpoint because, to simplify the argument somewhat, the, the evidence that you have against it being true is always going to outweigh the evidence that you have for it being true. Even if even if testimonial evidence carries some weight, the weight of your own personal experience of nature always proceeding in a predictable, orderly fashion with no exceptions, that's always going to outweigh, cancel out, override any testimonial evidence. And therefore, um, miracles can't be accepted. Now, he's very canny when he makes his argument. He doesn't come out and say, you know, so that means we shouldn't be Christians, we shouldn't believe the Christian religion. But what he does say is rather... Um, cheekily, he says that uh, just as the Christian religion was established on a miracle, and he's thinking of the resurrection, it takes a miracle to believe it today. In other words, it can't be believed on a on a rational basis. It takes something of a leap of faith, almost a miraculous leap of faith against uh, reason and evidence in order to believe it in the present day. I'm curious, uh, you know, roughly 250 years now from from Hume and his writings, uh, are there things that you think uh, theological developments perhaps that have happened that that maybe would not have happened had theologians not had to reckon with a lot of what Hume brought to the table? So maybe some positives that have come from theologians having to interact with him. Yeah, um, certainly Hume has had a significant impact on theology in the last few centuries. Now, when you write a book on someone, uh, you, there's always a, a temptation to sort of overstate their significance and their influence and make him the guy that's responsible for everything, whether good or bad, depending on your biases. Um, so I, I want to be careful not to to overstate and say that Hume is perhaps the, the fount of all bad theology or modern liberal theology or something like that. But the reality is that Hume is is part of a larger story that certainly begins before him. He's not the first, you know, skeptic of, of the Christian faith by any means. But he is a significant one, and uh, his philosophical work, for example, 
had a, a, a huge impact on Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant himself said famously that, that reading Hume had um, roused him from his dogmatic slumber um, about his sort of traditional approach to, to metaphysics. So, so Kant's philosophy, and particularly his, his Copernican revolution in epistemology, is, uh, is partly triggered by Hume's skepticism. He wants to actually respond to Hume's skepticism and and, um, save, as he puts it, save both science and religion from Hume's skepticism. So so Kant follows on from Hume, and then from Kant you've got other uh, philosophers like Hegel. Again, Hegel's influences are more than Kant, but you might well argue that if there had been no Kant, there would have been no Hegel. And certainly if there had been no Hegel, there would have been no Karl Marx. And uh, we all know about the various influences that Karl Marx has had on on modern culture and indeed on modern theology as well, for example, liberation theologies. So, you know, there are different kinds of streams of thought that flow through and from Hume that um, have influenced uh, obviously philosophers, but also theologians as well, because, you know, the history of philosophy and history of theology are closely intertwined and and theologians, whether they recognize it or not, are going to be influenced by present philosophical currents. So on the whole, Hume's influence has been negative. I don't think I don't think there's any insight that Hume has that's really been helpful in and of itself to Christian theology. But if it has been helpful, it's in being a uh, serving as a challenge for theologians to rise to and to maybe um, develop uh, new defenses and understandings of Christian faith that take into account the kind of challenges that someone like Hume um, raises. Uh, it, it has been said, and you've probably heard this this adage, that um, orthodoxy owes a debt to heresy. So, for example, um, the Nicene Creed was a response to Arianism. So if there had been no Arius, then Arguably, there wouldn't have been a Nicene Creed, uh, but Eris is one of the bad guys, right? <laughs> so, um, but nonetheless, something good came from that in the response to Arianism. Likewise, we might say that in, in Christian responses to Hume, there's been a, a deepening, a developing of Christian theology, of Christian epistemology, of Christian metaphysics. Um, so so that we could say that that has been positive. But on the whole, I think... Um, the response of theologians to both Hume and Kant in his own way has been essentially retreatist. That is to say, the the challenges that both Hume and Kant raised to natural theology and revealed theology um, have led to not a sort of doubling down on orthodoxy and and, and and a concerted effort to defend orthodoxy, but rather to reconfigure the Christian faith so that it simply sidesteps those sort of challenges or, or just redefine Christianity so that the critiques don't apply. And I think, again, to simplify somewhat, that's got what's going on with uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher's um, uh, approach to, to grounding Christianity not on divine revelation, but on religious experience. Um, and that, of course, becomes the really the foundation for modern liberal theology that wants to ground it on this sort of inner subjective experience rather than objective facts of history, objective facts of divine revelation. So, I mean, I could, I could go on and, and a lot of it might actually be uh, 
not really speaking from a matter of expertise because uh, modern theology isn't my area of expertise. But insofar as I can uh, get the big picture, the big view of how theology has developed from the time of Hume, you've really got the sort of conservative approach that has tried to answer Hume directly and refute his uh, position and the more liberal view that sort of concedes, waves the white flag and says, okay, we need to find some other conception of what the Christian religion is um, because Hume has destroyed the traditional view. Yeah, I I just was going to ask about um, a specifically reformed response to um, what what Hume has put forward. I know this is something that you you touch on later on in the book, and I know you don't want to give away the whole book because we want to encourage folks to, to buy the book, but maybe um, just just offer the listeners a little bit of what they can expect um, in that chapter on the reformed approach to responding uh, to Hume. Yeah, I mean, there there have been many many responses to to Hume um, from conservative Christians, and uh, depending on exactly what how you understand the challenges that Hume raises, that's going to affect the, the the kind of response that you give. What I try to do in the book is to give a response to Hume that's not just a conservative Orthodox Christian response, but is in fact a, um, a distinctively reformed approach. And what I mean by that is that it's a, it's a response that comes from a self-consciously reformed worldview that, that begins with a certain understanding of the nature of God, the uh, creator-creature relationship, um, a a robust doctrine of revelation that recognizes both natural revelation and special revelation working together in conjunction to give us knowledge of God and knowledge of the world, Um, uh, a a sort of redemptive historical understanding of history. Um, You know, I could go on with other reform distinctives, but I think it's important to start not just from some generic sort of mere Christianity position, but from a robustly, deeply biblical reformed position. And I think then we have extra resources to identify and critique some of the flaws in Hume's in Hume's uh, project and in his methodology. And and the two that I really focus on, the two sort of um, linchpins of uh, Hume's philosophy, are his presumption of naturalism and his presumption of autonomy. So he really starts his entire project um, f- just assuming or giving giving a precedence or priority to a naturalistic explanation of everything, not just the external world, but human nature as well. And, uh, and I point out some, some reasons why his presumption of naturalism is not just unwarranted, but actually self-defeating. But secondly, his presumption of autonomy. That is, he, he starts with the assumption that he can rely just on human reason and human observation to answer the big questions of life and that his entire uh, his his project his uh, attempt to develop this complete science of human nature can proceed on the assumption simply that what our our um our senses tell us and what we can deduce or infer from our sense experience will be sufficient to give us the answers that we need uh without reference to god without reference to divine revelation and Again, I think from a Christian, Reformed Christian perspective, we want to to challenge that head on. We want to expose that and say it may not be 
apparent that he's relying on a on the autonomy of human reason but he is you can see it there and we need to challenge that head on it's not it's not just his conclusions we want to challenge we want to challenge his starting assumptions his starting presuppositions and the very methodology upon which he proceeds and um and there are some other things that I could say about how a, a distinctively reformed epistemology, I think, answers some of the sceptical challenges that Hume presents us with. But, um, yeah, yeah. If I go any further, I'll just have to start reading directly from the book, and that's probably not what you want. <laughs> so, in your reading of Hume, and your understanding of Hume, and your understanding, I guess, of contemporary theology, Christian philosophers, pastors, is there any way you think that they are either knowingly or unknowingly, probably more unknowingly, utilizing facets of Hume, whether it's as starting points or as conclusions that are downstream impacting their preaching, their theologizing, their philosophizing? I guess it depends which theologians we're talking about. Of course, theologians are, you know, a broad camp. You know, you've got everything from the, the you know, very conservative, even fundamentalist ones, right through to the full-on liberals that it's not even clear they believe in God in the first place. So, you know, when we talk about theologians, um, it depends which ones, and, and then we can answer the question of how they might be influenced by, by Hume. But, you know, in, in general terms, what one sees uh, in in modern theology, and which would be mainly liberal or progressive theology, you see a, a dichotomy often assumed between um, science and religion, or between uh, reason and faith. So there's there's this realm of uh, objective knowledge, uh, things that are scientific, historical data, and so forth that are sort of grounded in observation. And then there's this realm of religious faith and maybe values. And there's this sort of dichotomy between the two, and we've got to keep them apart. And, and that's the way that we protect theology by actually uh, insulating it from from what we would call empirical science and history and so forth. And you find different versions of that epistemological dualism um, in different forms of liberal theology. Uh, but there's, there seems to be a general assumption that theological claims, while important, aren't they can't be proven, they can't be rationally justified, they can't be rationally defended, uh, we shouldn't attempt to make um, serious historical arguments or scientific arguments in support of Christian claims, because Hume has basically cut the legs out from that approach, and so we need to find some other basis for, for doing it. So while, while Hume may not be front and centre in that, often this, this reticence to have an integrated epistemology and an integrated worldview that brings science and history and morality and uh, theology together is uh, perhaps an artifact of, of Hume's critique. Um, on the conservative side, uh, I, I get the impression that conservative, uh, more conservative theologians aren't all that interested in Hume and think that they can pretty much just ignore him and, and get on with the work of, of exegeting scripture and uh, developing a systematic theology. And in a sense, that's right. You, you, you can do perfectly good theology without having read a word of Hume. Um, but sooner or later, your theological claims are going to be challenged by people who have read Hume and are going to say, well, you know, you make all these claims, uh, supernaturalistic claims, but uh, Hume has taught us that uh, we, we can't even know these things and that, that we should be skeptical about these claims. So 
while you're sort of within within the walls of the church you can you can get on with your theology but if you really want a theology that's going to uh, connect with the world connect with modern culture you're going to have to understand some of the skeptical challenges that are present in the modern culture and the fact that many of them trace back to to Hume in some form or another often the kind of skepticism we encounter is a much much cruder version than Hume's more more nuanced and sophisticated skepticism but um, there's a connection nonetheless um, and actually you know Hume Hume can be helpful in some ways for uh, encouraging us to think more deeply about um, an integrated Christian worldview that that has an, uh, a, a well thought through epistemology connected to a well thought through metaphysics. One one um, one thing that we can admire in Hume is that he's a systematic thinker. He's trying to connect the different aspects of philosophy and um, really uh, all of human knowledge together into some sort of consistent system. And uh, in the end of the day, I think it's uh, I think it's radically self defeating. But that impulse to try and follow through the implications of your premises, to try and develop a systematic, integrated view of human nature and the world. That is something that Christian theologians ought to be aspiring to as well. And if we do it well, and if we can do it in a way that isn't uh, self-defeating, but actually um, explains our ability to know the world and to make moral judgments and so forth, then what we've shown is that that, that our Christian worldview is... Um, is far superior to the rather um, impoverished one that Hume would have us hold. So another question I have, you know, we've been talking about Hume this whole time and mentioning he's not a Christian, and you mentioned how we can do good theology without ever reading a single word of Hume. So I think this objection comes fairly often. Why read somebody like Hume, who's a not, not a believer, who offers arguments against Christianity? What is the point and value in doing something like that? Why, why read non-Christians? Why not just stick to the Bible and good theologians and good Christian philosophers and leave aside these other people like Hume? Yeah. Yeah, I, I can understand why why. Uh, Christians might say, what value is there in, in reading someone like Hume, knowing about Hume? Um, shouldn't we just be you know, reading the Bible, reading Christian theologies and uh, Christian biographies and so forth? And there's definitely something to be said for that. I think that the, the impulse behind that is a, is a good one. But, you know, it's a little like asking, why, why should doctors read and think about diseases? I mean, Doctors, doctors are interested in health, aren't they? Not illness. Well, of course, the one implies the other. And if you're going to maintain the the health of a body, you need to understand something about the diseases, the afflictions that it could it could suffer from. And so, while not not every Christian by any means needs to read Hume or read about Hume or even know anything about Hume, it's a lot of Christians can get by perfectly well without it. Um, I think those of us who are called to um, more of an, uh, an an intellectual approach to Christian theology, to think think more deeply about our faith and the intellectual foundations of our faith, sooner or later we're going to have to grapple with a thinker like Hume, um, partly because just the, the challenges he raises are interesting in their own right, but also because of the influence he has had and the residual um, skepticism 
that we find in our culture today that can be traced back to, to Hume's thought as much as anyone else. And so there are benefits. I think there are benefits that uh, Christians uh, uh, can gain from reading someone like Hume. Uh, first, it will uh, cause us to be more more self-critical, more, more reflective about our own faith and perhaps to better understand uh, what the what the foundations of our faith are or what they what they ought to be. Um, reading Hume gives us some uh, tools for understanding the culture that we live in today. Why is why are naturalistic presumptions so widespread? Where do they come from and what are the implications of them? Why is the uh, scientism of the new atheists like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. Where, where did that come from? And what are some of the limitations of it? Um, the general general skepticism towards supernatural claims. Uh, reading Hume will give us some understanding of where these things come from and how we can respond to them. And just in general, I think reading um, philosophers, including non-Christian philosophers, can just give us a breadth of, of general knowledge about history, about the course of... Uh, of um, intellectual thought um, that will give us um, resources for thinking through at a deeper level our own Christian theology, for developing a more sophisticated uh, and robust Christian theology, and a Christian philosophy as well. I wouldn't wouldn'tly separate the two, but um, you know, both a Christian theology and a Christian philosophy are really going to be mutually supportive. There are also some apologetic applications as well today. One of the points I make in the book is that although Hume is a critic of the Christian faith, he inadvertently uh, vindicates certain aspects of the Christian faith. For example, in his famous problem of induction, um, how is it that we're able to make inductive inferences from past observations to future observations? Hume considers this and basically concludes we can't. There's no justification for uh, extrapolating from our past observations to our future observations. But science does that all the time. Science relies oftentimes on inductive reasoning. Hume can explain why that's rationally justified. But a Christian worldview can, because in a Christian worldview, we have uh, God, who is the creator of all things, who is uh, rational, and who has created the the um, the world to operate in an orderly, predictable way. And he's given us minds that are able to discern the order and to make these kind of inferences in a reliable way. So that's just a snapshot of one one way in which Hume inadvertently, by raising certain philosoph philosophical problems that he himself can't answer, shows how the Christian worldview actually has a lot of explanatory power and uh, philosophical utility in answering some of these perplexing questions. Well, this has been great. I want to remind our listeners, the book we've been talking about is just titled David Hume. It's in the Great Thinker series from PNR. And one of the great things about this series is that the the, the writing itself, I mean, it's, it's an accessible level. Uh, the length is just 110, 115 pages for these things. So it's easily digestible. So if you're pastor at a church and you're wanting to take your uh, people through different various important thinkers to understand how to defend and understand Christianity, I think it's a great book. Even And if you're just in, randomly interested in David Hume, I think it's a great introduction as well. But I also want to plug Dr. Anderson's other work. I know I mentioned some at the beginning, but he's if you want to follow along with the, with his work, which I imagine a lot of our listeners, you guys, you probably do, uh, and you're not... You, 
don't know where to go, well, he's got a faculty page at RTS where you can find a good amount of stuff, but he's also got his website, Analogical Thoughts, where he's got his papers listed with links to them, and, and he posts on there pretty regularly. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on there. So, Dr. Anderson, is, is that the place to go? if our listeners want to keep in touch and understand what you're doing and to follow along. Yes, it is. If by frequently you mean two or three times a year, <laughs> it's not as frequent as I would like. I mean, sometimes I sort of have, have bursts of inspiration and productivity where I, I will blog a lot and then there are these sort of periods of silence, like, you know, the the silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, something like that. But um, uh, yeah, the, really the sort of one-stop shop for my my writings – both published and less formal, um, some lectures I've given, a few videos and so forth. You can find them all on my website, which has the name uh, Analogical Thoughts. So probably if you put that in your search engine, it'll come up. But the the, the URL is uh, www.proginosco.com. So proginosco.com is, um, yeah, that's my, my personal website. Great. And looking at it, there's, I mean, there's links to all your papers here, which is awesome. You've got a paper on the laws of nature. I had no idea that was there. I think that's fascinating. I need to read that. Uh, and didn't you do also a paper on the, on the laws of logic and, or how logic can prove the existence of God? Yeah, yeah, that that was co-authored with uh, Greg Welty, and you you know Dr. Welty. Um, but yes, um, there's a there's a paper arguing from the laws of logic to the existence of God, a, a kind of a transcendental argument um, that that logic itself uh, requires the existence of of God. So we we've. There's an initial paper and then there's a lot of follow-up stuff on that because there's been sort of critiques of it and responses and so forth. So it's, a, it's an ongoing uh, uh, discussion, I guess. Excellent. Well, everybody's been listening. I, I completely commend you to read all of Dr. Anderson's work. I mean, I think he's a model theologian, a model philosopher, and how he engages others as interlocutors, how he engages charitably with others, and how he's philosophizing and, and theologizing from within a confessionally reformed context. I mean, you can't get much better than that. Got lots of papers on laws of nature, laws of logic, I mean, rationality of, of theism and Trinitarianism and uh, paradoxes. I remember you did a book, I don't know how many years ago, on paradox. All great stuff. So I commend you guys who are listening, gals who are listening, go read his work. I think it's fascinating. I think it's fantastic. And for those who are listening, as you know, you've been listening to The Only Analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.